After listening to this interview, I encourage you to go to patfordphotos.com. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Captain Jeff and welcome to the Real Guy Podcast. Over the years, we've tried to bring you the most real guys in the fishing industry. Not necessarily the most famous, but definitely the most real. And this week is no different. I'm excited to have Pat Ford on the podcast today. Pat has held over 27 world records. He's a distinguished fly fisherman, an author, and a famous photographer, sporting somewhere around 300 magazine covers. I've always admired Pat for decades and was flattered to have him on The Real Guy Podcast. You know, Pat, it's been a lifetime, and I really don't remember not remembering you. <laughs> okay, that's good or well, bad, whatever. It, it, it's phenomenal because, you know, in, in, I'm 54 years old, so I basically had every sport fishing magazine ever published, pictures on my wall, always, you know, into it, and Pat Ford was always part of it. So sitting here in your living room doing an interview with you is... Uh, it's a big deal for me. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Thank you. It's nice to hear that. Now, Pat, um, tell the audience, at least you can start off by, by telling the audience, <clears throat> when you started fishing, how did that come about? Oh, I, I grew up in New Jersey and New York, and I've always been fishing. Since I remember buying my first fly rod, and it was a bamboo rod with a wooden handle. It cost $4. Nice. And that's how I got into fly fishing. And I got out was in the 50s. And uh, I, I've always fished. Um, I got, to, got in the Navy, went to, went to Notre Dame, undergraduate, went to law school, got a Navy JAG. They sent me to Florida, which was perfect, a lot better than Vietnam. So I went to Pensacola, and the fishing up in Pensacola back in, this is 1969, was excellent. Probably still is. I just haven't been there. But... I was there, and I kept reading about all these guys down in the Florida Keys, like Al Fluger and John Emery and Norm Duncan, things like that, that were out um, fishing in these new center console boats and jigging and catching all these kinds of light tackle fish. And, uh, God, I said, I wish I could go there. You know, so I finally called up my detailer and said, if you ever get an opening in Key West, just let me know. Well... Nobody volunteers to go to Key West unless you're an avid fisherman. If you're in the Navy, if you're a single, it was like death. And even then, if you didn't love the fish, um, it was like purgatory because there's nothing to do. Right. This is back in 1971. Um, I arrived in Key West in January of 1971, and uh, best decision ever made. You know, I just love Key West, love the fishing. Uh, finally got out of the Navy at the end of 1972. And Miami's the first point of civilization where you might have a law practice. So I stopped. Best decision ever made. Loved it. Very cool. And um, in Jersey, were you doing the striped bass, uh, rockfish, flounder, that kind of thing? No, actually, I was mostly, um, you know, freshwater. I did some, I did some flounder, bluefish, stuff like that in the, uh, on the Jersey Shore. But not fly fish, just fishing, fishing. Okay. And I did some trout and, and panfish and things. Nothing, nothing compared to what we do today. But it was just fishing. It was hanging around with a rod in your hand and a bunch of kids going fishing. And uh, 
you know, we'd go offshore once in a while in a boat and uh, parents had a house in Connecticut, it caught some stripers off the beach. But back then, the stripers were like almost extinct. They weren't, they had real problems with the supply and they had no regulations on them and everybody was killing them. And that's come back quite a bit now. And now it's quite good. But back then it was, it was not much. Right, right. And the, um, so when you showed up to Key West, I mean, you had just a, a plethora of, of things that you could now take your fly rod out and, and, and go catch. Oh, it was... I mean, compared to being... It was insane. It was insane, yeah. Even Pensacola. It was just insane. I went and bought a boat for about $2,500. It was a 17-foot center console thing called a forecast or something, and had an 85-horsepower Evinrude on it, which worked about 50% of the time. (laughs) That was good back then. (laughs) Back then. That was a big deal back then. And, uh, you know, we didn't even have pedometers that were any good. So... um, you know, I got that, and I started learning how to fish. And, of course, I pestered everybody in Key West, drove them all crazy, and asked them about things and how to do this and how to do that and where to go. And you basically learn it. Over the years, you learn it. And I remember I had a 15-gallon gas tank in that boat, and my big deal would be an extra 6-gallon jug if I wanted to go to the Marquesas, which was like going to the moon. Right. You know, <laughs> you figured you'd, you'd disappear from the face of the earth if you went past the Marquesas. But that's all... Uh, you know, that's all the range I had. Mm-hmm. But you could go to Smith Shoal and catch cobia and amberjack when I was down there. Um, Jim Lopez went down and caught several world record kingfish chumming off Smith Shoals, caught them on fly. And there were a couple of wrecks you could get to. The Sturdivant was the closest one. The looking back was farther out. But that wasn't available to my boat. That mm-hmm. was, there were only a few guys that could know these wrecks. A.M. Tyler, Jim Lopez, Bob Montgomery was the only real guide in Key West. And... You know, it was back then, it, it was uh, kept the riffraff off the water. I mean, you went to a wreck, you had to run a distance from the last buoy on Northwest Channel, the Smith Shoal, and you would run that at a certain RPM, 4,000, and you put it on a stopwatch, and you'd get a time. And then you would do a lap around Smith Shoal, and you would head out at 004 degrees for that time times 3.14. That's how you and, and, and you worked. could never change your RPMs because if the sea conditions got you were still going at your 4,000 RPMs or whatever it was, you couldn't change them. And you'd get there and you'd throw a buoy. And then you'd look around and hope you found the wreck. <laughs> and, and sometimes you'd be looking for a wreck and you'd look behind you and there'd be 50 cobia following you around. Like, hey, you got any food? What are you? <laughs> and you'd say, okay, I'm close. So you'd see turtles and you'd find it was the looking back and the bazilka and the Dunbar. And the other wrecks, the Bazilco, you had to run from the, the looking back. So if you didn't find the looking back, you were dead. You just turned around and drove home. So it was, uh, it was quite an adventure. Very few guys could do it. And, boy, if you got on those wrecks, it was sick. You'd start chumming. You'd have six, seven-pound mangrove snapper right up behind the boat. It would be 50-pound amberjacks. You could play with teasing, cobia. It was, it was just amazing. Just amazing. And you can't. It, it, the same thing happened. That was back in the 70s, early 70s. And then Loran C came out. Well, this was the first time. This was about 1980. This is the first time that people could actually find a wreck, get the numbers, and get back to it. Right. So we didn't have to run our goofy Smith-Scholl time, distance, yada, yada stuff. 
Well, that made a whole, a whole bit of difference in everybody's life, except nobody had any numbers. So I know that R.T. Trossett and I, we talked to shrimpers. I was a lawyer at an office in Key West at the time. And so we got, had shrimper clients. So we'd say, hey, you got your hang chart? You might want to show us. And um, we got a lot of numbers that way because the shrimpers didn't want to hit the snags because they'd screw up their nets. So they had places they had to avoid. And they weren't really right spot on, but they were areas and we could go look and we could find stuff. And that was a whole new whole new uh, game. Right. It was incredible because all the wrecks were virgins. You got out there and it was just amazing. Being in Key West at that time, was it easy to build a network of people that you could um, bounce things off of or learn things from or a good fishing buddy for say that you know you, you were able to take advantage of while you were down there? Well that worked for a very short period of time until they sort of figured out you knew what you were doing. Then, and then they shut you off. And they want nothing to do <laughs> with you. And they hated you. you know? Did, they, was, it, was it really that cut and dry? Well, yeah. You, you're like Tom McGuane's book, 92 in the Shade. Yeah, well, that's based on Key West. Okay. And that's, that's all basically real people. I remember I was in Tom McGuane's house one day, and he had the type transcript of that book sitting on his desk. 92 in the Shade is about three inches of type, you know, eight by ten paper. And... Uh, but yeah, if you go read that, that's welcome to Key West, guys. They don't like outsiders. They don't like anybody, you know, stepping on their territory or trying to do what they're doing. Well, that's why. That's why I asked. I remember, not only in the fishing scene, but also in the surfing scene up and down the coast. It uh, was a very fine line on who was in the know <laughs> or was allowed to be in the know, and then who wasn't. I mean, the the real localism was a real thing. Oh yeah. And um, anybody that was back uh, in that day, I mean, you you had to hold your own. Yeah. Talk to Bill Curtis about his spots in Biscayne Bay. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Curtis. You know, <laughs> um, or any of the guys. They, uh, they're they very protective. Yeah. It, it, we, it, it's, it's like that way now, but in a very soft way. And I mean by that is, let's say I pissed off a guide in uh, Biscayne Bay. That, he wouldn't necessarily come up to me and tell me he was pissed off, but somewhere through social media or through somebody that he knew or whatever, the message would get across in a very soft way. I think in the old days, if somebody was pissed off at you, they'd come right to your face, oh, yeah. let you know they were pissed, and you knew exactly where you stood with them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, uh, that, you know, things come to mind with Bill Curtis and anybody that was anywhere near him. And, uh, you know, he'd go over to, like, Rob Fordyce, who is now one of the deans of flats fishing, you know, in the case. He and Fordyce would get into it, and we'd go, and like, Jesus. <laughs> That's awesome. It's, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, Rob didn't take any shit, but he was respectful because Curtis was 100 years old and right. entitled to be cranky. So, <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know if you ever heard this, but um, a lot of people say if you fish long enough, you learn to hate everybody. <laughs> And if you think about it, it's, it's got a certain truth yeah, to that. I have a T-shirt that says, I hate people. <laughs> you know, the older I get, the less I like people to start with. I thought, you know, the COVID, you know, quarantines were basically a blessing. So <laughs> other than that, but the fishing is good. You've got, you know, like I've been fishing with R.T. Trossett since 1975, before he was a guide. Wow. And he and I sort of went out. He had a 20-foot sea craft. I had a flats boat. And I'd been fishing Key West in 71, so, you know, he was trying to learn it. 
So he and I went out a lot, and we learned a lot of things together. And uh, uh, it worked out well, you know, and I've been fishing with him ever since. One of my best friends, and, uh, you know, he's the dean of Key West now. Wow. So, Very cool. Very cool. Trossett, now he's... um. Is he st- he's still guiding full time now? What's he? What's his? How's his lifestyle? Um, well, he's like seventy years old now, or something, and uh, so he's not guiding fanatically like he used to. He's got a a great co-captain, Pat Klein, and he's running the boat most of the time. RT goes out, I think, when when somebody he knows charters him. Right. One of his friends, like if I have charter him, he'll go out with me. Um, if a tourist calls up and wants to take his family out, I don't think RT is going to go. Right. So, I mean, so he's trying to cater to his old clientele a little yeah, bit. He just wants he can. To, it's got to be fun for him. You know, it's, and, and Patrick is like 25 and, you know, a monster. He can throw a cast net better than anybody I've ever seen in my entire life. And, and he runs the whole show. That's, and he does, RT is just along for the, the, for the bullshitting. Well, and, that's good because as a guide, yeah. you kind of want to know, you know, What's ahead for you, maybe, you know? Well, Patrick is in great position because he's going to take over RT's entire practice. And, uh, you know, they're running a 39-foot yellowfin now with three 350 Suzuki's on it. And they can go anywhere. You know, they can they just run that boat in almost any weather. Um, the fishing out of it is fine. I don't know why they need to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but... Um, it's a it's a great operation. The gas, gas prices aren't helping them. Yeah, and that. I'm not really sure how many. You know, I don't think they're booked every day. I don't think anybody's booked every day between hotel prices and gas prices and charter prices and everything else down there. Fishing Key West with a guide is getting very expensive. Yeah, it's almost like Louisiana for crying out loud. It's exactly like Louisiana. Yeah, I haven't been to Key West in a long time. I used to go an awful lot with a guy named Bill Hart. Um, he lived on my street in Fort Lauderdale, and I think he needed a fishing buddy. Mm-hmm. to go down there so he would take me and i learned a little bit about key west but man i haven't even been to key west in probably a good 15 years if it wasn't for tv and social media i really wouldn't know what was going on down there talk to me a little bit i, I want to get into the photography stuff but i want to hear about what how you got into the world record stuff because what do you have t- hold 10 world records in? i've had 27 i think 27 altogether the, yeah altogether now when you were doing the world record thing was that a, a goal of yours or those happening by um i shouldn't say accident but no no they were um well i was in key west then i was in miami and i was addicted to fishing i was in the miami beach rod and reel club uh, i was the youngest guy to ever get a gold badge in the um the Rod and Reel Club, and I was the first person ever to win every category they had for a, in the yearly contest. Uh, so I was just, I was nuts. I loved the, the tournament fishing. I loved the, um, you know, the challenge of, of getting a particular fish, and I got into records. I still hold the Florida State record for sailfish on fly, and I set that with Ron Hamlin out of Palm Beach in um, February of 2000, uh, 1000. No, 1980. I'm getting my numbers back. That's 40, 80. 40 years ago. <laughs> 40, 40 years ago. Yeah, 42 years ago. And uh, it was it was legit. Mark Sawson was on the boat with us, and we were out there trying to catch a sailfish on fly. And we found them bowling the bait, which is very unusual. And I uh, hooked five fish on fly and finally landed one. Phenomenal. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty impressive. <laughs> I was impressed with myself. Yeah, and that was a Met record. And... Uh, and before that, I'd gotten, I'd gotten into different things. I know I was in a Key West in the Navy. I caught a, 
like a 17-pound mutton snapper on the flats on six-pound test line. And that was a time where they didn't have specific world records for spitting tackle or light line. It was like uh, there was a whole second separate category for spinning tackle. They had fly and they had general, and the spinning was different. And, you know, somehow part of the competition, I did. I was very active in the Met tournament, the Key West tournament, and uh, I just loved the competition. Right. And, of course, I couldn't learn enough about the fishing because it was just, it consumed me. I mean, being a lawyer in the Navy and stuff like that was, okay, that's like Boy Scout camp. <laughs> now, now we're fishing. That's the serious stuff. So, the, uh, you know, I just got into catching fish and I went to one phase where I decided that nobody caught any fish on fly rods with an eight pound tippet because initially it was just 12 pound then it went to 16 8 16 20 and like four or something but um, nobody had anything at eight pounds so I started fishing eight pound test tippet okay so we were out called we we're out doing a TV show once in 1985 and I caught a 67 and a half pound cobia on fly on an eight pound tippet. Whoa. That's still a world record. And uh, that will always be a world record because number one, there are not a lot of 67, pound 68 cobia pound cobia around these days. And if somebody sees one, they're probably not gonna throw a fly rod at it. And if they throw a fly at it, I can bet you it's not gonna have an eight pound tippet on it. Right. You know, those right. things are caught on spinning rods. Right. <laughs> Big well, it, jigs. As, as you were learning how to do all this type of fishing, um, it, from, from, you know, I'm a, I'm a good bit younger than you, but the IGFA was right down the street from my house. Mm-hmm. I lived on Los Olds Boulevard, and we'd go in there, and there'd be an, a, a lady in there that would work, and you'd ask her questions, and she'd go in, she'd have a, a file type thing, and she'd rummage through it. But because of the mat, and because of the the, the different tournaments and the IGFA, it seemed to me back then um, records, pound tests, documentation of the fish were a lot more, should I say, mainstream. Yes. So the guys that were into the fishing paid attention to that kind of thing, kind of like, I don't know, in the old days you get the newspaper and read right through the whole damn thing and knew everything that was in there. And I think the guys that were into fishing took that same mentality with the records and the IGFA and that type of thing, where today um, I don't think most of the younger fishermen don't pay attention to it. And if they did get a world record, it'd be more of a fluke that they kind of found themselves in as opposed to strategically trying to accomplish those records. Yeah, exactly. Back in the day of the Met tournament, you had line categories, plug, spin, fly, tippets, six pound, 12 pound, 20 pound, and then general. And so you were very conscious about what line class was and getting a Met record was a really big deal. So that was pretty cool. And my world record sailfish, that was a Met record. So I just had to send the information to the Met. So you'd first send it to the IGFA, and they would do all the testing and everything for you, and the Met would just follow whatever they did. But that made everyone very conscious about records, line tests. And we'd go out and fish with six-pound test line off Key West all the time, trying to talk to the guys like Al Fluger and Norm Duncan and, and, the, and the old school guy Stu Apt and stuff like that. And they're out you know, trying to catch the biggest fish on the lightest line. It was Tropical Anglers Club, Miami Beach Rod and Reel Club. The competition was a very, very big deal. And I think back then, 
two things. Number one, we all thought the fish were going to be around forever. Right. So killing them wasn't a problem. If you want to kill one for a record, that was totally acceptable. And nobody thought bad about you or threw rocks at you. It was a Met record. It was a IGFA World record. That was all a good thing. And then they invented braid. <laughs> and now you can have, you know, 30-pound braid that's the equivalent of 10-pound mono. So why would you use 10-pound mono? It's the same casting, same maneuverability, but you got 30 pounds of pull instead of 10. So the braid sort of like murdered the world record things because everybody became more conscious of catching fish than fooling around with records. Right. Um, it also became very unfashionable to kill fish. You know, now if you're going to have a snapper or a tuna or something you're going to eat, you know, it's okay to kill it, but there are limits. And even then we're sort of increasing limits on mutton snapper and grouper and seasons because the fish population is decreasing. It's nothing like it was in the 70s or the 80s. Um, same thing with tarpon fishing. Um, Bill Curtis used to, I was a very good friend of Bill Curtis's and I fished with him a lot. And he told me that when he was fishing in the late 60s, he would go off Elliott Key or Broad Key, which place they called Curtis Point, and he said all day long there would be a school of 50 to 500 tarpon swimming by him every 15 minutes. And the only reason you didn't get a bite out of one school was that you're still fighting a fish from the other school. <laughs> and around, he retired around 2020, I think, and he told me in then, that was when I was at the peak of my tarpon fishing on fly. I mean, I was just, I loved that. So, he told me very seriously that there were 10% of the tarpon in 2020 that he had seen in 1970 I'd off Miami. I'd say that's generous. Yeah, that's generous. But now I'm looking at it from 2020 to 2022, there are 10% of the tarpon that I saw in 2020. The last five years has been the most dramatic change in inshore tarpon fishing that I've ever even thought I could experience. And so says everybody else. Everybody agrees with you on that. It's unbelievable. And I'm finding out um, some neat information um, with the tarpon. Like, we're finding big schools of tarpon in the northern Abacos now. And I grew up at a house in the northern Abacos, saw some fish out there every once in a while. You'd see a tarpon out that way. But now, I mean, there's an actual fishery. And between the destruction of habitat but tarpon unlike a lot of fish i think they simply say hey you know roll into government cut and say yeah it's kind of sucks the boat traffic's too much and there's not enough to eat here and the water smells like crap so i think they just swam across and now they're hanging out over there but they're definitely not in fort lauderdale to miami anymore right and it used to be we used to fish government cut in the in the 80s and stuff and, and jump dozen tarpon a night sure. on lures and stuff and live baits sometimes but mostly we went out there and jigged and we'd catch a bunch of them and the uh, Andy Mill and I have sort of talked about this from time to time where did the old tarpon go? The tarpon lived 30-40 years so for 30-40 years they've been swimming from north south we don't much know where they go after they leave Key West but they're coming down the flats but the last 10 years there's been a guide boat every quarter mile from government cut to Key West bingo down there so all these fish are getting flies thrown at them they're getting hooked the food source is decreasing the water quality is decreasing 
the boat traffic. I mean, forget the fishermen. You got, you know, jet skis. You got tourist boats. You got people driving all over the flats, spooking them out. And we figured a lot of the fish have just decided that this is too much trouble. <laughs> you know, if I swim down in 100 feet of water, nobody bothers me. The same thing, like, I'm going to go over across the bay and go down to the Abacos. Nobody's going to bother me. So a lot of the fish are just left that way. I remember catching, you know, seeing huge schools of tarpon in 120 feet of water. Right. Just looping, just schools, hundreds of fish just heading south. And uh, they just, they all appear at the worm hatches, you know, down in uh, Bahia Honda and stuff. But not in the numbers they used to. Right. Not in the numbers. The numbers are just down. Now you get to the point where, how do you catch these things? I mean, I ran the Golden Fly Tarpon Tournament for 13 or 14 years and loved it. Loved it. Lived for the tournament. It's the only tournament I fished. And it was three days. And it was sort of, it was good. It wasn't the Gold Cup or the Hawley. Um, those were the high-pressure crazy guys. And uh, this one's sort of like a you know, a clam bake with fishing rods. Everybody got to, it was the first tournament of the year. Everybody got together, everybody happy to see each other. Um, we all had a great time. Um, when I was running it, I never really cared about the guy that won it as much as the guy that came down and was fishing for, you know, five or six days, with, including practice days and stuff, and never caught a fish. I wanted him to have a good time too. So it was really a social event, and everybody was a good mood. Now, you know, go a month later, the Gold Cup, and everybody's shooting at each other. <laughs> and, you know, the guys aren't speaking. They're threatening people. They're, you know. Everything's top secret. Everything's crazy. You know, these guys are really serious. Really serious competitors. And they were sick of each other because they've been, you know, stealing each other's spots for the last two months and stuff. And, and uh, that was sort of more hardcore than I was possible uh, to tolerate. So, but it was, it was this type of a thing that, I remember this year, I still hang out at the Golden Fly, and, you know, I know everybody, and uh, it's just a fun time to get together with all your friends. But this year, I don't remember who won it, but they won it with, I think, 2,300 points. And you do that by measuring the tarpon and working a formula and giving it a weight. And over 70 pounds, you get 10 points a pound or something like that. Under 70 pounds, you get nothing, uh, but you get a release. You can release up to 70 pounds. If it's a weight fish, it's over 70. Like a 75-pound weight fish would be 750 points. Gotcha. 130 would be um, 1,300 points. So I remember the guy who won it this year was with 2,300 points. I remember one year when I was fishing, I had 3,400 points in one day, and I came in, and it wasn't even high rod. <laughs> because Andy Mill had 3,600. And uh, it's, uh, uh, that's the difference in the fishing. Yeah. I mean, it's just the, the numbers of fish, the opportunities. There are not too many fish in the backcountry, from what I've heard, because I haven't really tarpon fished in the last five or ten years. And the, uh, I used to love going back there because you'd, I fished with Rick Murphy a lot, um, you know, Randy Tao and some other guys. And I loved finding the fish. You know, you'd see them laying up in the mud or, you know, they'd be just cruising around these banks. And you'd only maybe get a dozen shots a day. But if you put the fly in the right place, six or seven of them would eat. Right. And, and they were big fish. 
usually. Now you go in the Atlantic. Only a dozen of shots a day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> guys would kill for a dozen shots, shots a, a week, week right now here. Yeah, this is this is back then. And then you go in the Atlantic and you have a school of three hundred fish swimming by, and none of them would eat anything. They would just laugh at you. And one time, I was out off Miami and there was a big, huge school of tarpon coming. And by this time, you know, I was mad at them, so I was throwing a live crab on a spinning rod. So I had a live crab. And it was sort of an experiment. A live crab, 40-pound fluorocarbon leader, flipped it out in front of the school. And a little while later, Rick Murphy said, hey, you know where your crab is? I said, yeah, it's right in the middle of that big hole in the middle of the school. <laughs> so literally, all the tarpons swam around it so that there was this big open spot around my live crab sitting there. I didn't so be- feel so bad about getting rejected on flies after that anymore. The <laughs> damn things wouldn't even eat a live crab. Did a lot for your sanity anyways, right? Yeah, it made me feel better about myself, I guess. But <laughs> now things are hard to catch. And this was years ago. Now, now they're really hard to catch. Right. I mean, because these fish are smart. They've been fished at for 30 years hard. And they know that if they come up on one of those little floating things with the stick in the mortar, that anything they found or find around it is bad sushi. Right. And... Everybody's using, we were using, Andy Mill and I fished a lot when we were using the toad, the green toad fly. That was the new fly, and Tarpon hadn't seen it, and they were eating the, the heck out of it. Um, now it's the blower worm. The worm fly. Yeah, everybody's using the worm, and they're using it all the time. Not, it's not just drowned worm hatches anymore. Uh, tarpon just snarf them up. It's about an inch and a half of... Uh, zonker strip with the fur cut off <laughs> right, go figure <laughs> you know and yeah go figure um on a size one hook inch and a half of that and then a little chenille or some sort of fuzzy head to make it sort of different colors and it's like you know maroon or yeah maroon i guess is the best way to describe the color of it and then maybe a tan head and just to show perspective i was down in fly shop in key west the other day and I was looking through the flies, and they had the really great-looking paloa worm in there. And it was, you know, it was the inch and a half of sonker strip cut off, and it had a really nice brownish head, and it was epoxied. It was ten ninety-five. <laughs> you know, ten ninety-five for that nice piece of yarn. Yeah, it's ten ninety-five for this thing. I'm going, God, it's you know, you, it, that's the easiest fly to tie on the planet. But back when it started. We were experimenting with all kinds of different materials, um, floating, non-floating, foam, you know, feathers, zonker strips, chenille, all kinds of things. But after all the experimentation, it's an inch and a half of zonker strip with the cut, the, uh, that's, that's the fur cut off. And some people make them out of shoelaces. You know, they find shoelaces, like leather shoelaces like that, and use those. Yeah, I, I, the Keys is mind-boggling to me because growing up in Fort Lauderdale, you always went to the Keys to get away from it all. Mm-hmm. Like, geez, I want to go to the Keys. I want to get away from everybody. I'd say the last 15 years or so, that's not the case anymore. When I go to the Keys, I don't expect to be away from everybody. And the tarpon scene down there, I simply don't participate anymore it's simply because of the huge number of people. I mean... Literally, I can fish in, in Miami and have almost no fishing pressure or go down to Isla Mirada and fish with 100 guides. Yeah. And to me, um, that's the last thing I want is to leave Fort Lauderdale to go to a place that's being fished more. And there's more people, more people at the sandbar, mm-hmm. more people at the boat ramp, more people at the restaurants. 
And um, I don't know. I just never thought the keys would ever get the way it is now. Uh, it's that way. It is. It, it's changed so much. And COVID really changed everything, too. Because when COVID first started, and I know it was March 13th of 2020, is when they closed down Key West because we were supposed to fish that weekend with Trossett. And the hotel called up and said, don't come. We're not taking any new patients. We're throwing everybody out. All the tourists were out of the Keys. Now, we had a um, big gap there where nobody did anything. And gradually, I could get back in the Keys because my, my girlfriend had a condo down there, so we had owned property, so we could get in. But nobody else could. You couldn't drive to the Keys. So I remember being down there, and, and some of the guys got in. I know Rob Fordyce got in somehow, and um, most of the good guides were down there. And I remember talking to Rob, and I said, fishing changed? He says, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, there's nobody harassing the tarpon. There's lots of them, and they're stupid. You know, they're eating again. So as far as, you know, like you say, all the traffic at the boat ramps, everything else, it was back to the way it was like in the 70s. There were fewer fish, but they just weren't being bombarded every quarter mile by somebody. Right. And it made a big difference. Uh, then, of course, the hotels weren't even taking people. And then when they reopened, like the last year or so, all the hotel rooms have been like $500. I mean, a holiday inn we used to get for 125 bucks is $500, $600 now. And the guide prices have all gone up. And uh, now it's, it costs a fortune to go down and fish. I you know RT... Trossard, who I've fished with for 75 years, or it seems like 75 years, um, the, uh, you know, he's, he gets $2,200 a day plus gas, plus tip yeah, for the mate. That's a lot of money. And that's a lot of money. And the biggest problem they have up and down the coast that I've seen are the sharks. Yeah. We were talking about that earlier. And uh, in Key West, the sharks are, are terrible. Um, we used to go out on, on the submarine wreck and chum for tunas. Um, Trossett's uh, modus operandi is netting up 60 pounds of live pilchers and going off the reef and throwing them out in the water and boy that works so we'd go out and chum up all these things on the, on the submarine or any one of the 47 wrecks he's got out there and you used to be able to catch tunas on fly you could catch them on light tackle you'd catch a lot of blackfin tuna not anymore now you go out there, you're using spinning tackle with, again, I'm back to braid, 30 or 40 pound braid on a spinning tackle, um, getting a fish, horsing it in, get the first one in, get the second one in, third one will get eaten by a shark, you'll never land another tuna. Right. You will never land, you'll look down the water, you see three or four 300 pound lemon or reef or bull sharks just hanging out under the boat because they've figured out that the boat catches fish they hook fish they tire the fish out they bring them right back to the boat they don't have to chase them anymore they just sit under the boat and wait for them you'll never land the, you'll never land a fish you can't land anything on a fly rod out there anything that takes any time to land is dead right is dead and and the same stories i get from key west all the way up past stewart the yeah. sharks are incredible sharks are incredible inshore offshore doesn't matter what you're fishing for even snooks and mangrove snapper fishing now mm-hmm. You're losing them to sharks. Now, there's a lot of different theories about the sharks, but um, I think my theory on the sharks is one, of course, they understand what a boat means to them now. They yeah. say a boat, and they can tell which boats are the better fishermen through harmonics or whatever. I know for a fact that when you go to Government Cut, if there's three boats fishing, 
the shark will hang around my boat more often than they'll hang around somebody else's boat only because it's familiar that knows that I'm out there five or six days a week. And he knows we're going to catch a tarpon. And he'll sit there and swim around the boat until either we leave, we catch a tarpon, or he leaves. But that and then the fact that the commercial fishermen are under such scrutiny to keep the sharks alive. Yeah. So they're killing all the sharks' food mm-hmm. and then throwing the sharks back in the water. So, of course, the sharks are now figuring out other ways to, to keep... They were they were talking about the guys that do the the shark diving out in uh, in Jupiter. Mm-hmm. And I've done that a bunch of times, and it's really cool because you'll go out and, and chum up sharks and jump in the water and, and swim around with them and take pictures, which is pretty exciting. I've done a lot of shark diving over in the Bahamas and, and up and down here. And the sharks don't bother you, but they use really old bonita, frozen a couple of times. I mean, it's really nasty nasty stuff you know and, and it's there's no blood there's nothing fresh and the sharks sort of swim up and say well it, it's probably a mcdonald's but it's free and maybe i'll check it out and they come in real relaxed and even in back on the submarine hook a bonita you'll land it hook a blackfin tuna not a chance they don't like bonita amazing so they use really calm not excitable food to get the sharks in for the divers and stuff and and everybody's saying, oh, that's causing the problem. Well, nobody's doing that down in Key West. And Key West got a bigger problem than Stewart does, right. than Jupiter does. But I've seen guys on the wrecks off Stewart, when I fish with Rufus Wakeman, and you see guys out there, and they're, they're on these wrecks that hold the permit, the spawning permit. And they'll hook a permit eaten by a shark. They'll sit there, and they'll hook, you know, 15 permit, and every one of them will be eaten by a shark. Why are they doing that? Haven't they figured out that they're not going to land anything? And even if they do land a permit, they release it, and a shark eats it 30 feet from the boat. Right. Because it's tired. can't fight them. It can't swim. So they, but just, you've got to stop doing that. You know? right. And I was talking to Rodney Barreto, who's the chairman of the FWC. He says the biggest number of complaints they get are about sharks. There are so many. Key West, even in the snapper spots, catch two Maybe you catch a third one. As soon as a shark eats one, go. You got to change spots, right? Because they're everywhere. Two two tarpon in government cut, and they change spots. Because I know if mm-hmm. I caught two, the third one's going to get eaten. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I have to run over to Rickenbacker or whatever. Yeah. But a couple mile run and start fishing again. And not that the tarpon are not hard enough to get already. So now you're de- you're dealing with less fish, more sharks. The strategy's totally different. Shit's just not getting any easier when it comes to, no. to tarpon fishing. Well, we had, we were up looking for spinner sharks up off Stewart last year with a friend of mine. And we caught like a 100-pound spinner shark. And a 15-foot hammerhead came up and bit it off right behind the fin, right behind the, uh, the peck fins. Amazing. The whole thing. <laughs> the 100-pound shark. It just got chomped. Mm-hmm. Just like you can't cut that with a hacksaw or a... You know, or a, a you know a chainsaw for Pete's sake. Spit it off. Just a couple of tugs in the, you know, on the line. You're reeling ahead. Right. Only it's not like a snapper head or something. It's a shark head. So it's it's scary. Even back in you mentioned the flats. I was with Dave Denkert, and we got a nice snook, and I want to get pictures of it. And Denkert said, "No, got to release it." I go, "What do you mean? You're just gonna pick a picture? No, no. Get it in quick. Release it. Sharks will get it." And Sure enough, we get it in. We don't take any pictures. We let it go. And two minutes later, there's this big boil chaos going off on the flat where some shark found the weakened snook and ate it. 
Right. I had another story with Bob Branham in Biscayne Bay. Um, we're out and we're permit fishing. It's easier to catch a permit in Biscayne Bay these days than it's to catch bonefish. So we're out. We had a couple of shots at permit. Didn't catch any. Finally, we saw a school of permit. I threw a crab out, got hooked up, ran off a bunch of line. and said, oh, good. I finally got something. You know, I got a permit. Ran off a lot of line. And I'm pumping it back in, pumping it back in. And Bob yells out, watch out. Sharks are chasing it. I go, oh, shit. So I start pulling it back and harder. I get it in close to the boat. We look at it. It's not a permit. It's a 12-pound bonefish. I haven't seen a 12-pound bonefish in a long time. So it's a mega bonefish. So Bob goes ballistic. You know, I'm going ballistic. And we've got these two seven, eight-foot sharks chasing it. Lemons, black, I don't know what they were. They were big sharks. And they're chasing it. Bob grabs the net. We pull it back. We scoop it up. And just as we didn't get that net out of the water because a shark slammed into the boat trying to get it out of the net. So... We had the fish in the boat, and the sharks just swam around the boat. This is in two feet, three feet of water. Swimming around the boat. They're going anywhere. It's waiting for us to release it. So we put the fish in the live well and ran it about two miles away and let it go. But people got to realize that even if you catch a fish and you get it in from the sharks, when you release that tired fish, right. a shark should be right on it. Right. Because they know when it's tired. <laughs> they know when it's hurt. Yeah, it made, some, it made some people pretty pissed off over in that Boca Grand Pass talking about them feeding the sharks uh, and they should probably I'm not a big guy to have government do everything but I am a big common sense guy and if you know that there's that many sharks and you're releasing those fish in that pass you're feeding them to the sharks and I really think that uh, long overdue for something to change in the Boca Grand Pass I've only fished over there once I did the women's tournament (laughs) back in really concentrating on photos. I figured the women's tournament was the best way to do it because they're all hot and they're all fishing in bikinis and, <laughs> and maybe they catch some fish, but I'd watch it and they'd catch a fish and then they'd drag it into the weigh station and then they'd put it in a sling and they'd weigh it, take it out of the sling, everybody get out of the boat, in the water, hold the fish up, you know, for pictures and then they'd let it go and it'd swim off about 30 feet and the bull sharks would kill it. Right. I mean, yeah, no, they're not killing fish, they're releasing the fish but they're releasing a damn near dead fish. And the bull sharks, they were just hanging out right outside the way station. Yeah. They don't have to chase. They're smart. They don't have to chase things around when they're healthy. These people things are going to just really wear them out for us. So it's easy, easy for us to get them. Scary. Well, we've, I mean, great stories about fishing and, and, and know you're an established angler and world record holders and all that kind of stuff. But now... The photography has taken over your life. Correct. Now, it, it's, it, it, it rings true to my heart about the photography thing because I lost my best friend, who's my fishing partner, my snook partner, to photography and filming. <laughs> now Sorry. He, he doesn't want anything to do with catching a fish anymore. He just wants to know when he can get on the boat at the right light at the right time to get his shots. Yeah, well, that's me. And that's the way your, your world yeah. is working Who's your now? friend? Chip Mayhew. Okay. Chip Mayhew, um, um, pretty pretty well-known filmmaker in South Florida. But um, we started doing YouTube together before Google bought YouTube. Mm -hmm. And he would use YouTube basically to store all of his film uh, recordings and stuff. He'd convert old from Super 8 VHS, and he was converting it to digital and then putting it up on YouTube. 
So at the very beginning of YouTube, um, especially Tarpon and Snook, it was his stuff that you saw. And um, we never thought for a second that anybody would ever see it. But literally lost my best Snook buddy to photography because he's now obsessed with it. And when I told him that I was coming down here to do the uh, recording with you, I could feel his excitement. Now, I have done recordings with Rufus Wakeman, and I've done recordings with some of the best guides, the TV celebrities, all these professional fishermen, but the one guy that got him excited was when I told him I was coming to see Pat Ford. Now, how does, um, how does that happen? How does photography take over somebody that was so much into fishing? Well, photography is a lot like fishing. Um, backing up after I did some photography in high school, I mean, I went to a, like one of the two of my high school football games, took some pictures. They weren't very good. Little point and shoot, you know, camera back. This is in 1961, you know, <laughs> and, um, then I got into college and I went to Notre Dame and after my freshman year in college in the summer, I decided I wanted to get down in the field and take football pictures. So I took all the money I earned during the summer and I bought a camera and a little telephoto lens and a light meter. And back then, men were men. <laughs> you know, there wasn't any autofocus, there wasn't any auto settings. Everything was manual. So I got this and I went around school, and the yearbook and the magazine and the newspaper and everything said, hey, I'm a photographer, you know, um, I want to shoot pictures of football. And they said, yeah, yeah, go away. <laughs> and uh, so the first day before the first football game, of my sophomore year, the editor of the magazine came in and said, hey, we have an extra field pass. Do you want it? I said, of course. So I took that, and I went down there with my little Pentax camera and my 135, you know, fixed um, lens, and I got some pretty good pictures. And I was down there ever since. And, and during, during college, my main activity was photography, all the sport photography. And I loved it. And then, of course, I went to law school. You don't have time to do anything in law school. And then I went to the Navy, and I had a kid. that would take 40 years out being a lawyer <laughs> and stuff like that. And uh, so I kept up with the photography. I always used the, the photos in my, uh, um, my trials and things like that. I had more photos. I had photos of everything. And the, uh, I got into videos in the 80s. I did a lot of videos and stuff. And then... They came out with these digital cameras where now you didn't have to have a, you know, a whole wet um, darkroom set up. You could do this on your computer. So I said, oh, that's cool. So I got a digital camera and then tried to get set up with the computer. Of course, I didn't know anything about a computer. You know, another sign of the apocalypse back then was Ford using a computer. So, so I got my computers and got this figured out. Friends started saying, look, you've been on all these trips and you've come back and you've written an article. Why don't you put these all in a book? Like how to do this trip. You've got all the photos. So I did that. I got a book, Stackpole, bought it. It went very well. I did a second one. And uh, I worked with Andy Mill on his book with all of his photography. And then gradually the, the photography sort of takes over because it's like fishing. You, first of all, you never get the perfect shot. You never get enough of them. The conditions change. The uh, lenses change. The equipment changes. You watch digital cameras going th from the beginning. That uh, A three megapixel digital camera cost $8,000. <laughs>
and now cell phones have got 15 megapixel pictures. And, you know, I think I've had every Canon camera, digital camera they ever made, because I keep going up, upscale, upscale, upscale. And uh, so I got rid of all my regular digital things, and now I'm into the mirrorless cameras. But they're, uh, it's, it's, it's consuming, like the fishing, because now I don't really need to catch any more fish. Part of the combination is I've caught a ton of fish. I've got a bunch of world records. I've got a bunch of really cool fish. I don't really need to do that anymore. Um, there are certain things I like to do, like I go to, like to go to Alaska and use a spay rod for king salmon. That's different you know, because a spay rod is a whole new animal for me. But mostly I just like to take pictures. So I'll walk around and spend most of my time with my camera in my hand rather than a fishing rod, no matter what I'm doing. Down here, I've found that you can't fish and take pictures. Right. So, you know, if I got a rod in my biggest fear is I'll be fishing, I'll hook a tarpon, it'll jump 30 times, 30 feet from the boat, and I'll kill myself. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so what I like to do is ride along with somebody. And I ask people this all the time. Of course, the very few of them ever remember to invite me. <laughs> but I say, you know, if you're going out fishing, you've got a tarpon guide, I'll just go sit on the cooler and take pictures. And I'll give you copies of all the pictures, you know, the good ones. And we'll have a good time. And, you know, I don't want to reach my wallet and I don't want to catch it. I don't want to pick up a rod. Right. It's your fishing trip. I'll just sit there. Right. And, uh, you know, once in a while that happens. But last couple of years with everything's changed so much that it's different and right now we're sort of just getting back into the normal fishing routines and uh it's it's just like just as much satisfaction as catching a big fish you now is getting a really good picture of it right you know a jumping sailfish or a jumping tarpon or um, not a really almost anything not a really good picture the best pictures that people have ever seen and I've looked at your photos over for, I mean, they mesmerize me as I, you know, and I see this stuff on a daily basis, some of the stuff that you're taking pictures of, but to get it and then to present it the way you do, um, totally phenomenal. And I got to congratulate you on that. Now, I was thinking about what I wanted to call this episode um, as I was driving down 95 to come see you. And I think I want to call it the king of the covers. I don't know anybody that has had more cover shots than you. I don't. I don't either. <laughs> he <laughs> said humbly. Um, well, it, well, I mean, it is what it is. But did, um, was, that, was that your goal going into that, getting these cover shots, thinking that, hey, if I'm going to be a photographer, I'm going to be the best photographer and get it in the best places I can? Or is that something that just happened organically, naturally? It's sort of like getting, <clears throat> like tournament fishing or world records or something. I mean, getting people say, oh, why don't you enter contests? I don't like contests, but my contest is a cover. When I get a cover, I'm competing with every other fishing photographer in the country. Right. And, and to get one is really a feather. And it, you know, backing up in the old days, the pictures were just supplementing the story. Right. You know, the story was the thing, and I had a few point-and-shoot pictures that would fill it. I was, wrote my first article for Saltwater Sportsman in 1969. And, uh, you know, they take any pictures back then. Then it got better, got better. The pictures got a good thing. Then a friend of mine uh, either bought or became a part owner of a magazine called Saltwater Fly Fishing. And he called me up and said, hey, you know, you're, I was writing about one article a year, maybe two. 
He said, we want you to write for us because you're, you're new. You know, you got good pictures, you got good insights and stuff. Start writing three or four magazines for us. A magazine stories a, a year for us. And I said, sure. So I started doing that. And you're always critical of your own pictures. So I'm always looking to get better and better pictures. And I started doing that more and more. And I got a bunch of covers. And I like covers. And so now um, I would start sending them to other magazines and other stories. And I get to know everybody. I know all the editors. And when I come back from a trip, I would take like 30 of my best photos or something like that. And I would just low-res email them out to everybody saying, hey, I just got back from Tropic Star or Guatemala or someplace. Anybody want a story? And people would come back and say, yeah, you know, you look, you've got giant dolphin. Can we have a can you use a story on catching giant mahi on a fly or something? Sure. So it would go like that. And they, uh, I think everybody knows I like covers. Well, and, uh, you know, so they sort of say, I would get requests from magazines saying, what have you got for Black Marlin? Or what have you got for Snook? Or what have you, we're looking for uh, this type, we're looking for these things for covers. Well, if I see a, a, a note like that, you know, I bombard them with stuff. Because I, I, I figured I've got almost close to 300 covers. That was, that was my next question. Yeah. How many I covers mean, do you actually I know, have? I stopped counting at 200, and I know I've gotten a lot more since then. And well, one time I walked into a Publix, and there were four, mag, four fi- the fishing magazine section, and there were four of my covers on display at the same time, four different magazines. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, total domination. The, um, but it's, it's, it, that's cool to know that, that um, you strategically work for that because the success is, you know, unparalleled. It's one thing to fall into something. It's another thing to earn it. And I think you did what you did in fishing and were very competitive and earned a lot of respect from a lot of people. And then with the photography, you took it to a whole nother level. I just think it's phenomenal. And I want to thank con- you. I want to congratulate you. Yeah. You've got to be the best of the best. Well, there's a lot of, I, of course, I look at everybody else's stuff and say, oh, I wish I got that picture. Well, that's you not know, true. I mean, I, I don't get everybody's pictures. I don't think mine are any good at all. But, oh, look at this one. It's great. And uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's a never-ending challenge. And we went from fishing with COVID and stuff, the fishing all changed. I mean, there weren't any offshore trips that I was going on. Nobody was traveling. So I, I started looking around with something to do with the camera. And Bob Branham, uh, you know, the dean of the, the living flats guides in Biscayne Bay, he's heavy into bird photography. So Bob and I would go, you know, hook up and go different places. And Bob looks at the bird photography the same way he does fishing. He's got holes. You know, he's got little hammocks with barn owls. He's got eagle nests. He's got caracara nests. He's got spots. He's got these spots. And he's got a tour that he goes from, like, I-75 all the way up to Lake Okeechobee and all the way back down around. And he's got all these eagles, hawks, caracaras, bobled eagles, different kinds of owls, all kinds of crazy stuff. And I love owls. Owls are fascinating. They are cool. Fascinating. So, and they're hard to catch. They're hard to catch on the camera. Because they, you know, they don't hang around during the daylight much, and they're fast, or they, or they just stand there and look at you. <laughs> and, and there we same way we get down to the Everglades. We've got a whole bunch of spots down at the Everglades. We've got some barred owls down at the Everglades that um, they live on a trail next to next to the swamp, and they catch crayfish. And last year wasn't very good, but the year before the water was low. And there were these owls and they and hawks and they would dive down and catch crayfish right on the edge of the, the water 
and then go in a tree and eat them. So we got a whole bunch of pictures of those things eating, uh, you know, crayfish, catching them and stuff. And, and you get to know them. And one, one of those barred owls, um, I don't know whether he's friendly or just hates people, but he collects hats. <laughs> and everybody said, watch out. For, we first got there. Everybody said, watch out for this guy. He'll come right at you. And, of course, what you want for the photographs, you want the owl flying right at you. So you get this giant flying face with the wings, you know, coming right at you. Well, he does that, but sometimes he comes right at you and hits right in the forehead and takes your hat off. <laughs> and, and if one of those things, this is a barred owl, and they're big, and if one of those things ever got those talons into your face, they would just tear you up, and they have really hurt some people. Really? So everybody's, you know, sort of, sort of conscious about this one owl, <laughs> and he just likes hats. He did it once to me in three years or something like that. He came in, just took my hat off, and flew away with it. Well, after hearing that, now you kind of answered one of my next questions. Was was uh, for the audience you don't doesn't realize this, but I tried to interview Pat almost a year ago, and then the fishing season came in, and he had to um, put it aside until now. But um, in the last year or so. Um, since I've been paying attention now, I watched you go to Alaska. I watched you go, what were you, over by Cabo to do the striped marlin mm -hmm. thing? Yeah, Magdalena Bay. Um, I mean, it's just every single week, it seems like you're on to the next thing. Driving you, or are you driving the trips for your photography? Do you understand the question? Um, it's a combination. I mean, I love traveling. I love fishing in exotic places, and I love the photography. And what I do with a lot of the lodges, um, I've, I've met the owners and stuff, and they say, look, just come, bring, bring as many people as you can, and, you know, you don't have, all you have to do is get here. You know, you don't have to pay for the lodge, but take a bunch of photos, get a story, and, you know, give us photos, and, you know, just bring a bunch of people, and, you know, have a good time. And I, and I love that. I love, I feel like a travel agent, but I've got people that like the same things i like having my own friends on the trips and i don't go on any bad trips i mean if it's a place i get invited to places i don't want to go and they can't pay me to go there i gotta go there Very. it's, it's got to be someplace i really want to go and alaska i love alaska um a place called rainbow king lodge that i think is spectacular and uh, i figured out i spent over two years of my life in alaska fishing really? yeah and um uh, because I go in the spring and I go in the in June, then I go in September, and um, I go for two or three weeks at a time, different places. But I love that. I go to South America a lot. Um, Untamed angling has got some amazing trips. They are just fantastic trips. It's untamed. Untamedangling.com. Everything they do is perfect, and you catch payara and golden dorado and all kinds of crazy stuff you'd never heard of before. So, it's I've been to the Seychelles. I've been you know, everywhere I go, I love to travel. Um, I don't have a job, so I don't have to go to work. <laughs> so I can go almost any time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm helping them out because I give them a whole bunch of photos for their website. I give them a magazine. And all they got to do is feed me right. because they're doing their whole thing anyway. I'm just sort of like an extra cog in there that's running around taking pictures of everybody and fishing a little bit. So right. it, it's, it's absolutely, I, you know, I sit down once in a while and say, you know, who gets to live like this? It's like the Jimmy Buffett song. 
Well, I think I think anybody that pays attention to your social media th- thinks that probably once a week. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the heck? How does Pat live like this? Where is he now? Right. Yeah. But you know, swimming with the marlin in, in Magdalena Bay, or diving with tiger sharks over in Tiger Beach, or and in like, all right, you're gonna hate this, but I'm in. <laughs> and, and next week we're going to Tropic Star, Panama for a week. One of my favorite. Coming back, then I'm going to. Argentina to a place called Jurassic Lake, which is the best trout fishing in the world. Unbelievable place, Jurassic Lake. And uh, then I'm coming back and going to uh, Churchill, Canada to take pictures of polar bears. And then I'm coming back and I'm going to uh, um, New Orleans to go red fishing with, with a friend of mine and a guide. And, you know, the flats fishing for those giant redfish is, again, really super. And after that, I've got to go back to Guatemala because they keep saying <laughs> when you go back. And, and then in, in February, I've got, I've got two weeks of owl trips in February in Canada. And I go to two different cities in Canada, and I'm spending a week chasing snowy owls and a week chasing great gray owls. And a friend of mine said, hey, I'm going on this great gray owl trip. You want to go? I said, sure. So then I said, but you get any snowy owls, which are the white ones. And he said, no. So I said, oh, okay. So another friend said, well, I went with this guy, you know, in this town, and we did great on the snowy owls. So I called that guy up and said, well, you got any openings like the week before my gray owl trip? He said, sure. So now I'm going, I'm going from, you know, for two weeks, one week of snowy owls, one week of gray owls. And it's going to, they said, now it's probably going to be, you know, 20 to 30 below zero, and there'll be a 15, 20 mile hour wind. I said, what? <laughs> what? And um, I said, okay. So then I went to my buddy in Alaska this spring, and he said, uh, okay, here, you need this jacket, you need that. And so he gave me all his old whatever they wear in Alaska when it's 40 below zero clothes. So I'm, if I live through this, it's going to be amazing. But It's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, it's well, it's going to be fun to watch the pictures. Getting them may be a little bit, a little <laughs> bit tough because it's going to be freezing. Well, that's a, that's a heck of a schedule, but I want to throw one thing out there for you. The last week in September to the last week in October, we have the mullet migration that comes through. Mm. And if you'd like to come out with me one day to get some photography on the mullet migration, I'm on top of that shit. Yeah, no, I'd love to do that. I've done that every year. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's really neat. But we're crazy. We jump in with the mullet run, <laughs> and we're running around looking for tarpon or sharks. You know, and that, that you'll be seeing this big wall of mullet, and all of a sudden their shark will just come, they're all apart, and the shark will come and go, oh, hi, what are you? And they'll swim by. And uh, the, uh, but the mullet world's fantastic, above water and below water. Yeah. Last year um, was the first year of my life that we almost didn't have a mullet run. It was so small, mm-hmm. and it was so quick. Yeah, and what used to be a six-week celebration of the bait coming through the you know down the east coast turned into like maybe a six-day thing. Yeah, very sporadic. I tried, and we didn't really see much of anything. The uh, other thing that happens, right, actually, from right now up until mid-September, is the Goliath grouper spawn. That's off Jupiter. That's fantastic too. I don't think I'm going to get to do it this year, but that's a it's a deep dive, at 95 feet, and they wrecks, and you've got 30 of these Goliaths on the these wrecks that's spectacular too right i want to i want to change the conversation just a little bit because i know that you were a founder one of the founders of the bonefish tarpon trust is that correct yeah sort of so yeah sort of 
what I wanted, what I, the reason I brought it up. There's is, a story behind that too. I'd like to hear it, but the, the reason I brought it up is um, I wanted to get your take on the environmental efforts that you're seeing from the different foundations. Because I have, I'm torn. Some of the stuff I think is, is the best stuff since sliced bread. And a lot of the stuff I look at and I think they're wasting everybody's time, energy, and money. And I haven't been around long enough in it to know. I have been around long enough to know that at 54, I know a heck of a lot more and I see things a lot different than I did at 34. But you've been around a lot longer and been paying attention to it a lot more. And I'd like to get your take on it. Mm. Well, it's, you know, I'm a big fan of, of the CCA and the Bonefish Tarbon Trust and the Everglades Protection Society. The more people you have trying to protect stuff, the better it is. Now, some of them are getting more done than others. And, and, and like you, I agree with you completely. Some of it's really good, and other people are like, the other things, why are you, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time? And the, the difference, I think, is between the science and the actual doing something for Florida. Like the BTT got the permit off western dry rocks um, closed during spawn season. That's a big deal. That means there can be a lot more permit. And they should do that not just western dry rocks. There should be a whole bunch more of those things. But it's a start. And they don't... CCA, they're, they're into water quality. They're into you know, protecting the fishing as best as they can. And of course, they do so much stuff and I don't really have privy to what they do and what they try to do that doesn't work. Um, I remember we were at one of the Bonefish Tarpon Trust board meetings and Bob Branham says, can you, can you hurry this up? We really need more bonefish in Biscayne Bay. <laughs> and that's, the, uh, that's like, you know, what they're trying to do, but it takes so long to, to see any results. They talked about stocking bonefish, which sounds to me sort of stupid because, you know, you put in a, six-inch bonefish is going to swim to the first thing that's in a gray suit that it sees, and the gray suit's going to eat it. Right. They don't tell them to stay away from these things. So, you know, it's very difficult. What can you do on an expanse of water that goes all the way up the Florida coast down to the Keys on both sides to protect fisheries? And it's, you can't really, you can have no fish zones, People are f- fond of those. People are not fond of zones. I'm big on no spearfishing zones because you can really wipe out a, a patchery for something like that with um, a couple of spear fishermen hitting it. Right. And uh, well, let, let, me, let me turn a question for you. Like, for instance, when I first started looking at the conservation part of the fishing, you know, a lot of it had to do with commercial fishermen, recreational fishermen, limits, sizes, and that kind of thing. Which um, I thought that the I thought that the recreational side was somewhat a non-argument if you compared it to the commercial side of fishing. Today, I look at it as whether it's commercial or recreational doesn't really matter anymore because now the narrative should be about the water quality. So, for instance, if CCA does a spawning or a uh, hatching program for redfish and they do a million redfish, and they put them in Charlotte Harbor. And then that red tide comes, and the bacterial levels are too bad to support. Right. Yep. And it's done. Mm -hmm. And I think for the first time, 
when I look at the different organizations and foundations is I think they should concentrate on the narrative of water quality because that is overwhelmingly the problem. Water quality, food. You know, the shrimping in Biscayne Bay and stuff like that. The It used to be the netting in, in Florida. We got the nets banned years and years ago, but... You know, I remember being out there and seeing a net boat came off Elliott Key and killed 2,000 bonefish because they thought they were mackerel. Why would mackerel be in 15 feet of water is beyond me, but they just put those nets out and they're just got hordes of bonefish being pulled out and killed. Right. So that was a big deal. Then you get the shrimpers that are killing the shrimp. If there's no food, the fish are going to follow the food. I mean, there's a, some places in Texas where there used to be hundreds of tarpon where there are none. Homosassa. There used to be just, I've got Billy Pate's home videos of Homosasa back in the 80s that are just mind-boggling. Hundreds and hundreds of huge fish. Now, if you go out there for 10 days fishing, you get two bites, it's a big deal. They're just not there anymore. And certainly nothing in the numbers that they were supposed to be. Where'd they go? Why did they leave? Somebody said, well, there used to be a jillion blue crabs there, and then something happened with the water quality, and the blue crabs don't go there anymore because the food's gone, tarpon don't go there. Other Val Fluger told me one time that he was fishing there and he walked, looked around at a 360 degree, turned around the boat, counted 96 boats within his sight. <clears throat> fishing. That'll, that'll do it too. So you've got food, you've got overfishing or overboating, and you've got water quality. But when the water quality goes to hell, everything follows with it. <coughs> right. Kills all the food, fish all leave, they don't come back for God knows when. And, uh, it's just, I mean, how do you prevent a red tide? I'm not sure anyone even knows what causes a red tide other than some bacteria bloom or something or another. Right, and, and, and it stays confusing, I think almost on purpose, um, by government, different foundations. They're all fighting for different um, goals and purposes, so they keep it very confusing. But at this point, when you see the amount of sewage that's getting dumped in the water in Broward, Dade, and Palm Beach County. And then you see the bacterial blooms, you know, following that. And before conservation, there was some sort of debate what you should do, what you shouldn't do. At this point in time, there is no debate. We have to quit poisoning the water. And I just wish that the foundations and the, all the environmental organizations would take that narrative and push it first and make it a priority and a focus because it's never quite been so isolated per se. Like before you could blame it on commercial fishing. You could blame it on keeping too many of these or keeping too many of that or whatever. But when your bacteria level and your pollution is so bad that it can't even support barnacles and oysters anymore, never mind a tarpon or a big smoke yeah. or something mm -hmm. like that. And that's where I'm getting the most frustrated because I'm working harder at trying to educate people so they understand the problem. But I'm getting more frustrated because the narrative is getting taken in so many different ways. Are you following me? Yeah, we've also got competing interests. We get back to the Lake Okeechobee problem and the big sugar and, and all of the farmland, plus all the fertilizer runoff. What's that done You know, in the Stewart area, wiping out that river? Uh, we used to go up and there used to be turtle grass everywhere. There's no grass anymore. Right. And, and even down in the Keys and, and Snakebite and Garfield and things, you go up there now, they're mud bowls. 
used to be crystal clear. I've got photographs underwater in, you know, the snake bite of redfish over turtle grass, crystal clear, beautiful. No, all mud. Same area, just nothing but mud. There's no grass. It's all mud. Um, everything's dead. And is it too much salinity? Is it not enough salinity? Is it? It's not overfishing. Right. Because it's got nothing to do with overfishing. Right. Because nobody fishes up there anyway, unless you really know what you're doing. And it's just completely water quality. It's there's so many science. That's what the bonefish tarpon trust is trying to do a lot. Is trying to figure out some of the scientific data on the water quality. And they've got guys like Aaron Adams that really know their stuff. And what they talk about is Greek to me. <laughs> it's way way right. above my pay grade as to what they're talking about. But you've like you said, you've got to get the science on it. Then you've got to get something to do something about it. But in between that, you've got all the commercial interests that aren't not fishing, whether it's big sugar or building the newest condo on the beach or, right. or dredging something to landfill or, or doing something like that, that are just throwing roadblocks in between the two. Well, th talk to us a little bit about the beginning of the Bonefish Tarpon Trust story. Back in the day, Bill Curtis came into my law office one day, which he did. He didn't live too far from my office, and you know we were buddies. And so he came in and he said, there's a trout unlimited. Well, yeah. I mean, Orvis was big in that and stuff. And he says, why isn't there a tarpon unlimited? I go, I don't know. <laughs> he says, let's make a tarpon unlimited. So I said, okay. So I gave him to one of, the, uh, one of my buddies, one of my lawyer buddies that did corporations and stuff like that. And he incorporated a, trout un a tarpon unlimited. Okay, so what are you going to do with this? I don't know. He says, I'm going to play with it. So... You know, he, he hyped it to a few people, and it got going, and then then it morphed a little into Tarpon and Bonefish Unlimited or something, and then it morphed into the Bonefish Tarpon Trust, and now it's a big deal. It is But it all deal. started with Bill Curtis with that little idea that the trout people are doing this. Why can't we, we do it as Tarpon? And, and it worked out, and it just it progressed. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, then you've got a lot of really – really talented business people like Harold Brewer and, and all the guys that have been, you know, running the BTT thing. And, you know, they're all sort of older. They're retired. They're very effective, very good businessmen. They're passionate about fishing, um, doing all kinds of things. Right. And uh, they sort of came in and, and took it over and made it a giant operation that it is today and it just it started out with just the goofy guide in the key in playing miami saying why don't we try to do what we're doing for tarp with trout what they're doing for tarpon so it, it uh, that's, that's how it went that's how it went that's cool let's uh let's wrap it up on that that's an excellent story uh can't thank you enough for, for spending some time i know the audience is going to really dig it um is there anything that i didn't um or that we didn't talk about that you'd like the audience to know? Anything personal? Well, I can, well, I can give you a little advice on cameras. Okay. The, the new fad is the mirrorless camera. And that's where everything's going. I shoot Canon. There's no difference between the Canon, the Nikon, and the Sony. Those are the big, or the Olympus. Those are all the big ones. But for most of my photography, I use a 24 to 105 lens. That's everything close. 
24 is a wide angle, it's good for boat shots. The 104 is a little bit of a telephoto. From that, afterwards, I go to 100 to 400 lens. And actually, Canon now with the digital mirrorless, they make 100, 500. So I've got that. That's my wildlife lens, my fish jumping lens. Because, you know, we keep it down around 200 for the fish jumping, but for owls and stuff, you're out at 500 or something like that. So between those two lenses in a setup, you've got everything from 24 millimeters to 500 millimeters, which is about everything anybody ever needs to photograph. And that's, you can get different degrees. Um, there's an R5 that I have. It's 50 megapixels a shot, which is huge, Whoa, right. huge. <laughs> the R6 does everything the R5 does, except it's like 25 megapixels a shot, which for no, most normal humans is more than enough. And uh, there's all different degrees of what they do, uh, but they're spectacular. The mechanics and the computerization of them is, is just off the charts different than it was 10 years ago. I mean, the, the R5 is 20 frames a second. The R3 is 30 frames a second. You know, I remember back in the day when you had one frame of push, <laughs> right. you know, and, uh, and you had to focus it at the same time. And they've got this thing called animal eye focus where the camera will lock in on the animal's eyes and stay on it wherever it goes in the frame. Wow. So you get pictures where the bird is in the, or the fish is in the lower right-hand corner of the picture. Perfect focus because that eye tracking took it right over. This is like magic. It's like magic. But you've got to be careful with the, the boats, with fishing photos, because salt water is the kiss of death for anything electronic. <laughs> That's you know, the truth. It's just if you get that thing, I, had, I jumped over and... On one of my trips with my underwater housing, latch wasn't secured, it leaked, blew out a, you know, a 5D Mark IV and a 15 to, you know, 17 lens, just $5,000 dead, you know, it's dead. <laughs> okay. So it, you got to be careful. You got to put it in a nice bag there and uh, keep it protected and... That's, you know, that's, that's the way to go. The 24105, perfect for 90% of what you do, unless you get into wildlife, and then the 100500 or the 100400 or something like that will cover just about everything you want to see, from grizzly bears to birds to anything you want to do. Right. And I've got a website. My website's patfordphotos.com. I throw most of my pictures on there because, you know, I, I sort of say, what, what good is taking them if you don't show them to people? So I would, I'd love people to go on the website, look at the pictures, maybe I'll brighten some guy that lives in Omaha or something during the winter, brighten his day with some pictures, and I like that. That's I'm awesome. trying to help. What I'm going to do is, uh, when, we, when, I, when I do the intro for the um, episode, is I'm going to put the patford.com thing up front so people get that first. They'll listen to the first hour and 15 minutes, but they may not hear the very end of it. So I'm going to switch that around to make sure people go to Patford. Um, and see the photos thanks so much for spending time um, we call this the real guy podcast because we emphasis on real guys and I can't think of anybody that's more real than you Pat I appreciate your time thank you well, it's a pleasure. Pleasure. <laughs> great interview